The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, welcome. Thank you for being here today for episode 28 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the score by now, but if you're tuning in for the first time, this podcast is dedicated to the stranger things in life, from true crime tales with bizarre twists to astonishing life stories, and every now and again, a paranormal tale or two. I also love to cover things like unexplained phenomena, so if all of that sounds like it's your cup of tea, you're in the right place for sure. I post a new instalment of the podcast every Wednesday morning. It goes up around 6.15am UK time, so do feel free to click follow wherever you listen to be notified when a new episode goes up. As with last week, please do excuse my voice. The cold I thought I was getting didn't really develop into much, but I just still sound ill. So I do apologise, I still really wanted to get this episode up for you, so I hope it's not too distracting. So, the story that I have for you today. Honestly, when I first started reading about it, I was a bit lost for words. In many ways, this is going to be a cautionary tale about what can happen when a really bad idea makes it to the mainstream and is put into action by people who probably should have known better. If you haven't heard of the Cleveland Balloon Fest incident of 1986, as I hadn't just a few days ago, just before we start, prepare your eyes, as I'm sure you will be rolling them multiple times throughout the episode. I'm quite feeling the short and snappy intro today, so without further ado, let's get into this wild story. I feel that now, in 2023, many of us have come round to the idea that balloon releases are not the best plan. Not only are they terrible for the environment, but they pose massive risks to wildlife and can even interfere with things like power lines too. But the truth is that balloon release events have been around for decades, whether they're at sporting events, weddings, funerals, or even vigils. The balloons themselves are often made of things like rubber or latex, or even foil or other metallic materials. And even though some efforts have been made in recent years to make them more eco-friendly and biodegradable, the damage done by them being released into the air can still happen before they have a chance to break down. And I know you might be thinking, all right, David Attenborough, thanks for the lecture, but I thought we were here to talk about a strange but true story. And indeed, we are. But this background information is important to help add context to the events that took place in the city of Cleveland, located in the US state of Ohio, in September of 1986. Now, during the 1970s, Cleveland had a pretty rough time of it. Their crime levels were at an all-time high, with 333 homicides recorded in the year 1972, when just 10 years earlier, the number stood at 59. The standard of public services was declining, whilst political and social tensions grew. The city's steel industry was on a downward turn, and over 100,000 people decided to move away from the area. So, by the 1980s, organisations and citizens in Cleveland were realising that they had to take matters into their own hands to help make the city a better location to live and bring some more positive attention to the place they called home. 
And so in 1986, a group called United Way, which aims to provide a range of community services, decided to organise a very specific type of fundraising event, taking inspiration from a similar stunt carried out by one of the world's most recognisable brands the previous year. In 1985, to help celebrate their 30th anniversary, Disneyland decided to try and set the world record for the largest balloon release of all time. The number of balloons they released into the skies actually makes me feel a bit queasy. I cannot believe anyone ever thought this was a good idea. But they made history by releasing 1.2 million balloons. Yes, you heard that correctly, 1.2 million all at once. And when United Way saw that this bar had been set, they decided that together with the people of Cleveland, they could beat this number and earn their spot in the Guinness Book of Records. They set themselves the challenge of releasing a total of 1.5 million balloons over the city simultaneously, with the idea being that the publicity stunt could be a great fundraising opportunity. It must be said though that Cleveland didn't have the best track record when it came to these kinds of stunts. Just a few years earlier in 1980, a local sports team along with the now defunct North American Softball League decided to try and break a record of their own. The idea was that a baseball would be dropped from the top of the city's tallest building, called the Terminal Tower and be caught at the bottom in order for it to reach a much higher speed than it would if it was just thrown from one person to another. It was calculated that this drop could result in the ball travelling at a speed of 138 miles per hour, which is 222 kilometres per hour, which would help to break the 1938 record. However, the event organisers didn't actually cordon off the area around the terminal tower when the attempts were taking place, which resulted in the first three baseballs causing damage to people and objects on the ground. The first ball hit and dented a car. The second hit a spectator on the shoulder, leaving what I can only imagine was a hefty bruise. And the third actually broke the wrist of, I assume, the spectator who tried to catch it. Although a ball was eventually caught and the record was broken, all people were really talking about were the failed attempts and the poor organisation of the event. So when 1986 rolled around and this new record-breaking attempt was suggested, you'd think that certain lessons would have been learnt from the shambles of the baseball drop event, right? If only that were true. In reality, not only would the balloon release, which was nicknamed Balloonfest 86, largely be remembered for all of its own planning mistakes, but it would also set into motion a sequence of circumstances which would lead to the deaths of two people. So, picture the scene. It's the night of the 26th of September 1986, and around 2,500 people have gathered in Cleveland's public square, which is actually where the terminal tower is located. They have been tasked with filling balloons full of helium. For every dollar donated to the fundraiser, two balloons would be filled. A three-storey structure had been put up in the square, and across it hung this huge mesh net which was designed to hold all of the blown-up balloons. Once the goal number had been reached, this would then be opened up to release all of the balloons at once. 
with the world record sitting at 1.2 million balloons, the organisers had initially planned to take their total up to around 2 million. Not only would this definitely ensure that they beat the record set by Disneyland, but it would also hopefully secure Cleveland's place in the record books for longer too. Now, there's a great little documentary that was made about Balloon Fest 86 back in 2018, and it includes a huge amount of archive footage showing all of the preparations getting underway. This was a huge deal in Cleveland. Various local news channels were reporting on it heavily, with TV and radio personalities interviewing people live from the scene in the public square, and it genuinely looked like everyone was incredibly excited. Many of those who were involved with blowing up the balloons were schoolchildren, and there was even a clip in the documentary where one girl was showing off the bandages on her fingers covering the blisters she'd formed after stretching out so many balloons. There were people discussing how the event organisation had begun back in March of that year, and I must admit, if you take away the environmental damage element that I think many of us would naturally be taken aback by in 2023. It really is quite spectacular to see the huge net being filled up by all of the brightly coloured balloons. It looks like something out of a film, and as publicity stunts go, there's no denying that it was incredibly visually effective. But as we get further into the short documentary, talk of the weather seems to start cropping up as night turned to morning on the 27th of September. Around 2 minutes 15, an interview clip is played where someone involved in the event mentioned that there was a 70% risk of showers that day. But by this point, there was no turning back. As the day progressed, organisers realised that these reports of incoming adverse weather were only getting worse, and that they were going to have to take swift action to have any chance of making the balloon release a success. By lunchtime, the talk of showers turned into whisperings about an incoming high-pressure system, and potentially an approaching storm, and the organisers decided that their current tally of just over 1.4 million balloons was enough to move forward with the release. It was much closer to the current Disneyland total than they would have liked, but as concerns grew over the weather, they made the call to stop adding balloons to the net. The huge crowd in the square began a countdown to the moment the net would be pulled away, and when one of the local TV personalities shouted, lift off, the balloon release began. I would absolutely recommend checking out the footage to see what that moment looked like. It's almost like you're watching something from another planet, to be honest. It's hard to get your head around just how many balloons were slowly escaping the net and floating off into the sky. And as they were doing so, the commentators were loudly exclaiming that this was the moment that had changed Cleveland's reputation from being the, quote, mistake on the lake to being the breaker of a Guinness World Record. The crowd was cheering and clapping, and from the perspective of everyone gathered in the public square, the whole thing had been a roaring success. Evidence of the community coming together and creating something breathtaking, which would put their city on the map for something they'd achieved, rather than for things like the crime statistics that had plagued them for years. And at first, the areas surrounding the city also managed to enjoy the views of the beautifully coloured balloons drifting through the air, but this enjoyment was doomed to be very short-lived. 
Just after four minutes into the Balloon Fest documentary, the footage suddenly switches to an area outside of the city centre close to Lake Erie, where hundreds of thousands of balloons can be seen in the sky. There are cars parked all around and multiple power lines too, set against skies which look incredibly stormy. But the balloons no longer appear to be floating upwards. They are very much looming larger towards the camera, and it becomes evident that they are rapidly descending towards the ground. The high-pressure front had actually pushed the balloons northwards, towards Lake Erie, and when the storm actually began and the rain started to fall, this, plus the cool air, naturally forced the balloons downwards. And due to the sheer record-breaking number of the helium-filled latex orbs in the sky at the very same time, the consequences of this were dire. Even though a helium-filled balloon will usually fall to Earth once it has deflated, I imagine the idea was that by the time this happened, the balloons would have all dispersed enough in different directions so that it wouldn't be as much of a concentrated problem. But given the conditions, it was only a matter of time before chaos ensued. Many areas of northeast Ohio were showered with the falling balloons, and they began to block roads and stretches of water throughout the region. So many of them descended over the Burke Lakefront Airport that it had to close for around 30 minutes whilst the balloons were cleared from the runway. And according to an article on Cleveland.com, the balloons caused, quote, a couple of car accidents as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicoloured orbs or took their eyes off the road to gawk at the overhead spectacle. One woman, who lived around a 45-minute drive from Cleveland, said that a large number of the balloons landed and then burst on her ranch, spooking her prize horses who injured themselves as a result. And all this damage and litter caused by the stunt didn't only affect those on US soil. Many of the balloons were pushed right over Lake Erie and into Canada, where they ended up strewn on beaches and polluting the nearby waters. But whilst all of this was clearly terrible from environmental, animal welfare and public safety standpoints, the worst was yet to come. Just an hour before the storm had set in, two 40-year-old fishermen, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick, were out on Lake Erie in their small boat. Once the storm hit, the pair got into difficulty and their boat actually ended up capsizing. They were thrown into the water and knowing they were out in the storm, the Coast Guard began to search for the two men. Around half past eight the next morning, their boat was discovered and despite the ordeal, it still contained two life jackets, a fishing pole and a baseball cap. But Skip and Raymond were nowhere to be seen. It wasn't, however, for lack of searching, but far more to do with some unexpected obstructions to the surface of the lake that made the searching almost impossible. There were thousands of still-inflated balloons scattered across the lake, many of them in large clusters, and this proved to make the rescue mission incredibly difficult. The Coast Guard searchers were desperately trying to spot an orange life jacket or the fishermen's faces on the water's surface, but amongst the extensive debris, it just wasn't possible. As one of the rescuers described it, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack, and he stated that there were perhaps as many as 200,000 balloons floating on the lake. 
Apparently, the event organisers had estimated that around 10% of the balloons could eventually descend and land on Lake Erie, but in the end it was actually closer to 60%. So it's no wonder that the work of the Coast Guard was so seriously impaired. Tragically, Skip and Raymond were not found in the days following their disappearance on the lake, and their bodies eventually washed up on shore a couple of weeks later. Both men had sadly drowned, and the incident caused fingers to be pointed at the Cleveland balloon release event. Their deaths were widely regarded as being indirectly caused by the balloon fest, as it reduced the chances of being saved by the Coast Guard so drastically. They had even tried to use a helicopter to try and spot the men from the air, but due to the still-falling balloons, it was simply not viable. Very strangely, just a few days after the balloons covered the lake's surface, they all but disappeared. News reports at the time stated that no one knew where they went, and it was framed as being a good thing, as it meant that they would no longer be posing a threat to the natural ecosystems of the body of water. Personally, I do not understand that conclusion whatsoever, as it seems very likely to me that they simply deflated and either sank into the lake or were dragged down by fish, which sounds far from ideal if we're talking about wildlife protection. Really, really bizarre. Now, various sources report that numerous people affected by the fallout from the stunt actually sued the organisers, United Way, for damages and ended up winning. Especially when you consider that the whole thing was designed to be a fundraising event, this was seen as a huge blow for the organisation. But there was more bad news to come. Sources tend to disagree when it comes to the exact details of how this went down, but it appears that in the end, the balloon release may not have been officially record-breaking. In the Balloon Fest 86 documentary, text flashes up stating that the event was not recognised by the Guinness Book of Records. However, other articles suggest that whilst it was awarded the title of the largest ever mass balloon release, in the 1988 edition of the book, due to the environmental implications of an attempt like this, it was one of several records that were later dropped by Guinness. And it makes complete sense to me why the book would want to distance themselves from this kind of stunt. Obviously, when a record makes its way into the book, it's almost like an open invitation for people to try and beat it and go one better. So in my opinion, they definitely made the right call on this one. And it seems this view is echoed by United Way themselves in hindsight. Back in 2011, their spokeswoman, Jenna Snyder, told a reporter from Cleveland.com, we would not do a balloon launch ever again. We've learned a lot in the last 25 years. As I was looking into this story, I read something which insinuated that the team initially thought that the balloons would rise high enough into the sky that eventually the latex would just disintegrate. But I find this pretty hard to believe. My personal thought is that a very limited amount of critical thinking about the consequences actually went into this event at all, even considering that this was the 1980s and there wasn't the same emphasis on environmentalism as there is now. But at the very least, it is reassuring to know that it's unlikely that history will repeat itself and that lessons were learnt from the debacle. 
So as I continued to read about Balloon Fest 86, it got me thinking about other world record attempts that may not have gone quite to plan, and I stumbled across a whole host of them, but one really stood out as being amongst the most bizarre. I'm talking about the series of events that took place during the 2005 record attempt for the most dominoes toppled. Between 1998 and 2009, the reality TV production company Endemol, best known for creating shows like Big Brother and Deal or No Deal, made a number of television extravaganzas in the Netherlands called Domino Day. The shows entailed roping in a huge number of people to try and continually break the domino-toppling world record, which had often been set by themselves the previous year. In 2005, the crew and volunteers started setting up over 4.1 million dominoes in a Dutch exhibition centre, and the designs they created out of dominoes really were amazing. They were basically works of art. These domino setups took weeks to construct, and on this occasion, everything seemed to be going to plan. That was until an unexpected visitor flew into the exhibition hall. A tiny house sparrow somehow managed to work his way into the building, and after flying around for a while, he decided to take a moment to rest. Unfortunately for both him and the event organisers, the sparrow chose to land on one of the precariously balanced dominoes, and I'm sure you can guess what happened next. The domino he had perched on toppled over, and when it did, the next 23,000 blocks next to it followed suit. It was a catastrophe in the eyes of those working on the record attempt, and after a number of crew members failed to catch the sparrow and usher him away from the remaining dominoes, they decided to take matters to a whole new level. They called in an animal control expert, who was tasked with capturing the bird and setting it free outside. But somewhere along the line, things escalated. The poor sparrow ended up being cornered and shot with an air gun, and was killed instantly. I know, it's horrible. But if the organisers thought their troubles were now over, they were in for a huge surprise. Unbeknownst to all involved, the house sparrow was actually on the Netherlands endangered species list, as a number of farming practices had caused the sparrow population to decline all across Europe. And the consequences of this little bird's death were massive. There was international outcry over the bird's killing, and the incident was put under official investigation. Members of the production crew and the animal control company began to receive death threats, and there were even media personalities advocating for the domino topple attempt to be thwarted by a rival event, rendering their efforts a waste. There was also a website set up for people to post tributes to the poor bird, which over 5,000 people commented on, and a song was released called The Domino Sparrow. People were not happy, and after the investigation into the incident was completed, a 200 euro fine was issued to the shooter for killing the sparrow. However, the case had become so big that a pretty wild step was taken to ensure the bird was never forgotten. His body was preserved and put on display at the Rotterdam Natural History Museum where he actually sat on top of a box of dominoes within an exhibit all about house sparrows. 
and he stayed there from November of 2006 until May of 2007. Afterwards, he was moved on to another exhibit all about animals with interesting backstories. And as far as I can tell, he could still be there today. So after all of that, what became of the world record attempt? Well, despite this sad interlude, the organisers were still able to get over 4 million dominoes ready to topple. And even though a further 153,000 pieces were disqualified after a mishap from a crew member, they still achieved their goal. It would be a relatively short-lived achievement though, as just a year later, a team in Beijing set the new record of 4.3 million dominoes. But like Balloon Fest 86, Domino Day 2005 is the attempt that would stick out in people's memories, even if it was for all the wrong reasons. Well, I hope you found the Balloon Fest story as perplexing and odd as I did. It really is baffling to me how an event like this could end up playing a part in such a tragedy. But I think even in 2023, it still teaches us something. And at the very least, serves as a reminder that we shouldn't just be doing whatever we feel like to this planet and expecting that everything will just be fine. I also hope you found that little bonus story interesting. I'm just sorry that both of them took such sad turns. I know from my stats that we do have a few listeners in the Netherlands, so if you are listening from there, please do let me know if this is a familiar story to you. From what I can tell, I think it was a pretty huge deal. I'm definitely going to be asking my Dutch friends about this one too. If you yourself have ever been involved in a world record attempt, please do get in touch and let me know what it was. You know I have a bit of a lifelong fascination with the Guinness Book of Records, so I would be super intrigued to know. But for now, we're going to go off on somewhat of a tangent, as it's time for this week's instalment of our outro feature, Weird Media. I think this might be the first time that I've recommended something in this feature which is incredibly current. Don't quote me on that, but you'll see what I mean when I say it's something that's literally about an active criminal case. I'm talking about the documentary series that's just launched on Netflix called Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal. Now, I've been following the Alexander Murdoch case since he was arrested, and from the very beginning, I've thought to myself, this is going to be a film one day, because it's just so incredibly complex and bizarre, not to mention heartbreaking. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, here is a very brief overview. As we speak, a man named Alexander Murdoch is on trial in the US state of South Carolina, accused of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. But that is just one part of this terrible story. There are multiple other people connected to the Murdochs, who are a very wealthy and powerful family with immense influence in the county they're from, who have passed away in very odd and tragic circumstances, and there are a lot of suggestions that this case goes deeper than any of us realise. As you know, I don't cover active cases on the podcast because... Not only are there many restrictions that you have to abide by when talking about ongoing trials, which I agree with, of course, but I would also never want to be part of the public circus that can form around these things. That said, if you did decide to check out this Netflix series or have been following the trial for yourself, I have posted about it in our private Facebook discussion group, so feel free to share your thoughts over there. 
it's a pretty difficult watch. But one thing I think was very well done about it was the amount of emphasis that the series put onto the victims and their loved ones. I got really emotional watching it at several different points. And in a world where perpetrators seem to have been focused on so heavily in different TV shows and documentaries recently versus the victims, it feels like a shift in the right direction from Netflix. So it's that time where I give a shout out to the various sources which helped me put together today's episode and there were quite a few this week. So there was the Balloon Fest 86 short documentary which can be found on YouTube. There was an article about Balloon Fest on case.edu which was very helpful. Cleveland.com had several reports on the events of September 1986, in particular one written by Michael O'Malley. There was a fascinating Forbes article about the overall dangers of balloon releases, which I found fascinating. That was written by Marshall Shepard in May 2019. There was a great overview of Cleveland's history in the 1970s on teachingcleveland.org, a brilliant article on Listverse by Steve Winalda, which is how I first found out about both stories featured in this episode. And finally, there was a piece on DutchReview.com by Gael Salem from July 2022, all about Domino Day 2005. As I mentioned, I always love to hear your own thoughts on all of our episodes. So if you'd like to get in touch, here are all of the ways you can do so. On Facebook, we have both the private discussion group and the main podcast page. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on there and you'll find both of those. You'll need to request to join the private group if that's something you're interested in. I try to check the request page each day, so I'll be sure to let you in as soon as possible. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast, and on Twitter, it's at aboutttogetweird. Then, of course, you can always pop me an email at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com with all of your thoughts or your own strange but true stories too. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I launched a Patreon page for the podcast and I just wanted to say that I'm so grateful to everyone who has subscribed over there. Your support honestly means the world. If you missed my announcement about it, here's a quick recap. If you wanted to and more importantly if you're able to as I know times are very strange, there's the option to pledge a small sum each month to help me keep putting out these weekly episodes. I haven't included any kind of priced tiers or anything like that on the Patreon. The amount is blank and totally up to you. Don't worry at all, nothing is changing with the podcast and our episodes will always be free to listen to, but this is just something I've put out there in case anyone would like to make a contribution. Your support means so much to me in whatever form, whether it's sharing the podcast on social media, telling your friends about it, or joining the Patreon it all means a huge amount. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a quick star rating on Spotify, that's incredibly helpful too. A massive thank you for even just being here listening today. You are all wonderful. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. (laughs) 